You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. One minute, your little Lula, eight years old, sitting on the counter in the 10th Street Diner, drinking a vanilla shake under the pink Coors Neon. The next, this. The stink of liver under your fingernails, and the water in the shower running red around your feet. In the thought experiment, you commit suicide. I wouldn't do it. I'd kill myself. In reality, you don't. In reality, you kill and eat someone else. You start at one end of the experience, go through it, come out the other side. You've killed and eaten a human being. Blood winks on your fingers, mats the hair on your arms and snout. The gobbled life flails and struggles in what it touchingly mistakes for a bad dream. The moon sets. The next day, You wake up in sheets that smell of fabric conditioner. There is CNN. There is coffee. There is weather. There is your human face in the mirror. The world, you discover, is a place of appalling continuity. I ate his heart. It seems incredible the words don't refuse, don't revolt. But why should they? You didn't. There's your horror, yes, But your horror's a tide going out. Every wave stops a little farther away. Eventually, the tide doesn't come in anymore. Eventually, there's just the sighing delta, the new you, the werewolf. The last werewolf, as it happens. Glenn Duncan is the author of Hope, Love Remains, I, Lucifer, The Death of an Ordinary Man, The Bloodstone Papers, A Day and a Night and a Day, and The Last Werewolf. His new novel is Tallulah Rising. Thank you for joining me, Glenn. Thanks for having me, Rick. You know, Glenn, uh, this is such an uh, interesting novel, and one of the things that struck me this morning about it, this is a novel set in our real world, in a very real world, and I think you did a great job of following up your previous novel, The Last Werewolf, with a second novel in the trilogy and making the second novel just fully complete in, in and of itself. This is a very difficult feat. And now I'd like to mention to our listeners, anybody who has not read The Last Werewolf, the existence of this novel is almost a spoiler <laughs> for the previous one. That's true. That is true. So, well, what, so run, don't walk, and read The Last Werewolf. Listen to our previous conversation, then come to this one. Uh, Glenn, talk about uh, creating this novel as the middle of a trilogy. I think, you, as I said, that's a good job. Well, it was um, the whole thing was kind of a happy accident, to be truthful. The Last Werewolf was a novel that I, I wrote uh, initially with the intention of writing a straight commercial page turner. That's not quite the way it came out, but from the point at which I realized we were definitely going to be able to sell it to a publisher putting on my mercenary hat for a moment. I thought, well, if they're going to buy one, there's no reason why they won't buy three, which is exactly what happened. But 
To create the second novel, it was imperative for me not to just do Jake in a dress. Once I realised that there was going to be a female protagonist, a female werewolf, it was very tough. Jake's voice was very distinctive. People really liked it. So there was an overwhelming temptation to just do a female version of Jake. But the truth of the matter is that Jake's predicament is completely different to Tallulah's. And it's the predicament that sets the tone of the novel. So whereas in Jake's case, you've got this, inver this absurd comic inversion, which is that unlike virtually every other protagonist, he wants to die rather than to live. Uh, and then along come all these forces that are bent on keeping him alive. So that comic inversion set the tone for the novel. Tallulah's predicament is, of course, very different. She's brand new to the curse of lycanthropy. She's alone, she's pregnant, she's grieving, she's on the run. That is not, on the face of it, a comic situation. That is a rather harrowing situation. Uh, and again, that set the tone. So al although there were some anxieties about, you know, how do I do this and how do I keep the same mix of ingredients that made the, the first book work, actually the character and the situation kind of took care of that. There is, of course, macabre humour throughout the book. There are supplied not, not only by Tallulah but by other characters. But the, the challenge for me was to just to make another very distinctive first-person narrative voice of somebody in this absolutely bizarre situation without repeating, you know, the, the material in the first book. These novels are crime novels in a sense. There's certainly a lot of crime going on, mm. mostly murder, and but other forms too. And one of the things that I missed, now you have a world with werewolves and vampires. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I kind of missed in the first book that is much more apparent in this book is the, the tension between those two groups and the way they are. As I read this book, you see the, the werewolves are like a samurai. They are, tend to be alone. They, they, there are friendships, and whereas the vampires are straight off a mafia. And, and that is such an interesting way to use those supernatural tropes to yeah. get at this kind of crime fiction. Yeah, I mean, the... Um there was always going to be, I suppose, a sort of tonal relationship or a structural relationship to traditional crime novels, especially in the first novel. You know, it's no accident that Jake's surname is Marlowe, for example. And that was partly because, to serve my own purposes, to work within the parameters of a, of a recognized form like, like the crime novel or like the horror novel or the gothic novel, having that framework really helps. Otherwise, I will get carried away with the ideas and we won't get any story. So, but in terms of the vampires and the werewolves, you know, this, I, I suppose it may seem very carefully thought out and mapped out ahead of time, but the, tr the truth of the matter is I'm just, a lot of the time, just sort of flying by the seat of my pants or, or following my nose, I suppose. I mean, once I realized there were going to be werewolves and, va and vampires, the traditional antipathy between those two species seemed absolutely, you know, that was an obvious thing to keep in. That's a very, very useful thing when it comes to setting up conflict. And the vampires, I suppose, the, the, for me, the reason that the vampires came out like the organized mafia was because unlike werewolves, they have language. You know, in, they, they don't lose the power of speech. They don't lose the power of uh, reason. Well, actually, the, even the werewolves don't lose the power of reason, but they lose the power of speech when they are in lupine form. So that seemed to me to be at the heart of it, that the, the vampires could create a culture because their condition did not force the sacrifice of language. Whereas with werewolves, once they transform, Although they can think, they can't speak. And that seemed to me to go to the heart of whether or not there would be a kind of community. That said, there are, there is, of course, in this novel, a, a loosely formed group of werewolves related by, um, by the connections of infection who do become a kind of family, albeit a dysfunctional one. <laughs> uh, 
and family is important to this. This is a book about motherhood, and uh, you create, uh, and there's a, a phrase in here, new feminism. You mentioned that, and this is certainly a new feminism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was kind of a joke, I suppose. But yeah, the thing here was that I didn't set out specifically to look at the issues which have, which have come up through the book. I didn't set out deliberately to look at female sexuality or anxieties about motherhood or issues of the body and rape and so on. Having said that, once I realized what the starting predicament for this woman was, I had a pretty strong hunch that those thematically those things would emerge, which they which they did, and which you know they're they're evident in the in the narrative. But the anxiety, I suppose the the in terms of women's condition, the thing that interested me was the amount of testimony that I'd read from women who did not feel the way they were supposed to feel about their newborn. Pop culture tells us that, you know, as soon as your child is born, especially if you're a mother, if you are the mother, um, there's an instant, you know, there's an instant uh, overflowing of love. And I'm sure that's true for a lot of people, a lot of women. But there is testimony from women who did not feel that, who've had, you know, huge feelings of conflict and anxiety and failure. So that was the more interesting version of motherhood for me. That was that was always going to be part of Tallulah's problem, this, this deep ambivalence. Tallulah her fear in relation to her child is very specific in the book, which is she doesn't know whether or not she's capable of eating her own child, which is, of course, a gothically you know, enlarged and distended version of this anxiety that I suspect a lot of mothers-to-be feel, which is, will I have the appropriate, in inverted commas, feelings about my child? So that was, that was always going to be part of it. There's a, a great quote in here where she says at one point, I've lost mental appropriateness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they do tend... Well, that, she's quoting Jake, actually, um, from, from the first novel. Um, one of the aspects of, of the, both these novels is that they testify to the inappropriateness of consciousness. You know, in, in that, in any given situation, there is a sort of... There is a kind of cultural script for the way you are supposed to feel. You know, if, if somebody suddenly dies that you're close to, you're supposed to immediately feel grief. You know, if you give birth, you're supposed to immediately feel love. This is what the movies tell us, and this is what bad fiction tells us. The reality, it seems to me, is that consciousness almost never plays by the script's rules. One is almost always feeling not quite one what, what, what is supposed to be feeling. And that's sometimes terrifying, and that's sometimes hilarious. So that mix of terror and hilarity, just by dint of having this, you know, this um, unruly consciousness, was again, was always going to be um, something that came through. You use the phrase dark hilarity a couple of times, and I think that that's the... It, the a sense of the absurd that that uh, permeates this book is really interesting because it's what's fun is that you present us with scenes of action in a really engaging action-packed plot that's really intense, but the the characters' perceptions of them are are that they're just caught in these absurd situations and that's one that's a very interesting and not and very unusual approach to this kind of fiction uh, which relates to the last uh, which you know, it's an extension of what I was saying about the inappropriateness of consciousness you know that that there's a scene in the last werewolf where Jake is being attacked by a vampire and they're literally sort of flying through the air across the room and as he's as he's traveling through space across the room he notices a copy of American Psycho on the floor and has this <laughs> as this sort of rogue memory of a conversation that he had with his friend about the book. And my, you know, this is just my experience of being alive, that while whilst things are going on which are supposed to affect you in a certain way, 
consciousness just doesn't play ball. You know, your mind is all over the place. There are certain things you're supposed to be feeling when you're having sex or when you're under attack by, by a vampire or, or whatever it may be. But, but it's almost never the case that it is plainly those, those predictable or scripted feelings. There's always a lot of other stuff going on. And, you know, my sense, my, you know, worldview is that, is that life is absurd. So there's no way that I can avoid that coming through. It's, it, if these are my characters, they experience things in, in the ways that I would experience them if I were in their shoes. So, yes, there is always going to be that, that recourse to the dark hilarity of, uh, you know, not feeling the way one is supposed to be feeling. Speaking of not doing as expected, we live in a culture where the vampire myth is kind of dominant and not without reason because our culture is somewhat vampiric. Uh, Yet you chose the werewolf to be your primary uh, supernatural trope. Talk about making that choice and um, then creating that first as a man and now as as a woman. Well, the choice initially, I suppose, was for two reasons. One is that as a child, werewolves were more terrifying to me than anything else. It was, again, to do with the idea of the loss of language, and it was to do with seeing the human inside the beast and knowing that you could not reach it, no matter what you said, no matter what, how many great after-dinner stories you got, what your personality is like, how many romantic conquests or how many great jokes you know. This thing is just r- like the shark in Jaws, right? This thing is just going, you are just lunch. That, was absolute, that, that, that sort of incapacity for any kind of dialogue was always very ter- terrifying to me as a child. Again, vampires traditionally don't lose the power of speech. They can be reasoned with. I always felt that if a vampire popped up with, bent on sucking your blood, you could, you, know, you, could hold off, you could hold them off for a couple of minutes with some, <laughs> with some sort of defense, you know, some sort of appeal to reason, which was less terrifying in a way. Plus, I think vampires were always presented in a way which was associated with culture, you know, high culture. They were always these incredible aesthetes, you know, dressed, dressed sort of rather flamboyantly or, or classily, had been alive for so long that they'd surrounded themselves with beautiful artworks and, you know, and so on. They'd read books, you know, <laughs> you could, you'd have a conversation with them about Proust if, if, if they gave you five minutes. So the, 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 the bestial nature, the, the incapacity for language and the inability to reach the, the, the human within the beast, that was always much more terrifying. So... The werewolf had that appeal. On a more sort of pragmatic level, vampires were ludicrously overexposed. I mean, you know, no pun intended. When I when I came to write this novel, vampires were everywhere. So I didn't feel the world needed another, <laughs> another vamp, another vampire novel. Plus, and this is not the least of it, vampires, and I've said this before, always, when I, when I watched vampire movies uh, when I was a kid, they didn't seem to have sex. They had the bite instead of sex. It was a sort of sexual, it was always pre- presented as a kind of sexual surrogate. Well, that's no kind of fun, you know. Werewolves, werewolves are, when you get right down to it, dogs, right? So um, that left a lot more scope for looking at relationships. You know, it was, it was impossible to have to get the kind of fiction, to get the kind of ideas that I wanted to be in this fiction, because these novels are about relationships and love and, and sex and all of the stuff that my books would be about, even if they featured regular human protagonists. But they had to have a carnal life in order for me to explore all that. Your protagonist, Tallulah, certainly has a carnal life. And I think that, uh, the, uh, talk about developing her voice, which is, I think, radically sexual radically body and what you know what it made me think it was interesting that there are words that sound alike and that for a reason nuclear and unclear and body and body yes indeed and i well one that i came across not that long ago which is not a similar sound but it's um, bedroom and boredom are anagrams of each other (laughs) um 
That's a, that's a, that's an aside, obviously. Yeah, Tallulah. If if this novel had a subtitle, it would be, "It ain't so different for girls." You know, I I, I for one have grown up or, or sort of remember in childhood learning culturally that girls didn't feel the same way about sex that boys did, and that is that that notion is is oft repeated in in uh, in popular culture. It has not been my experience that that is the case. Maybe I'm just hanging around with extremely raunchy women, but but it's always struck me that that the differences are exaggerated. So Tallulah, because of the curse, because she uh, is a werewolf, and because werewolves are carnal animals, has to deal with all that. But she's pretty bawdy in her own right. I mean, she was a she was a rock and roller even before she got turned into a werewolf. But it just seemed, you know, I took the the basics of the character that were established in the first book. You know, she's a we know that she's. A little cynical. She's a businesswoman. She's dropped out of a kind of. She dropped out of a literature degree, but she's a she's a doer. She's practical. She's pragmatic. She can get things done, and she knows how to take care of herself, in in in, in all ways. So those were the those were the building blocks of her character that I already had in the first novel, in you know in which she appears sort of about uh, two thirds of the way through. So it really was a case of logically extending from those initial character traits and from that initial initially developed psychology. And this is the way she came out. You know, she's somebody who is not ashamed of desire. She's not ashamed of the need to... She's not ashamed of self-preservation. And she is determined to survive at, at, all, at all costs. So those were the essentials of her psychology, and, and, you know, this is the way they developed in the book. Talk about developing the prose voice, because it's a different uh, voice from Jake's, and it it's, uh, definitely has the feel of a woman. So uh, how did you uh, pull that off? Well, I mean, it's, I suppose in a way it's not a very glamorous answer, which is that it was just an act of imaginative extension. I mean, which is what these things always are, whether it's whether it's Jake or Tallulah or, you know, any number of other characters that I've written. There is nothing I can do except imaginatively put myself in that character's shoes, regardless of gender or species or age or anything else, and just try and imaginatively extend into that situation. I, there, there is no other way of explaining it for me. I, I did not go off and interview women. I mean, I did not go off and say, look, if you were a werewolf and you just had this baby and this had happened and so on and so on, how, how would you react? I did not do that. Um, partly, I suppose, out of a kind of imaginative megalomania. I just trust my instincts. Now, you know, shoot me if I'm wrong, and that's fine. But I am willing more or less to take my chances in terms of if this is how it is for me as a man, my imagination tells me this with this twist or this added, you know, sort of nuance of feeling might be what it's like if if, if you're a woman. But it's just an imaginative uh, it's just an imaginative action, and there's no there's no way of telling whether that's a success except insofar as women readers find Tallulah a convincing female. So let's see. Uh, it sounds like method acting. Well, yeah, I guess, but it's but it's all in the imagination. You know, mm-hmm. there's no. I don't have to go off and um, sort of have my hormones interfered with, you know, and uh, start walking around in drag. But, but yes, I suppose it's the imaginative equivalent of that. One of the things I think that you do well is is plot in this book. The plot is very, very tense. And there's a great uh, little fill-up there at the, at the beginning where you just drop a name a couple times, Delilah Snow, mm. and you use that. And that just sets up such a a great tension and you resolve that talk about uh how you plot these like there's the big arc of the novel and these little arcs that you know echo through the Mm. novel 
Well, that's the architecture work, which I hate doing. That's the least fun part of the process for me. Plot does not come naturally to me. I really have to sit down with, well, at least with these books, which, which have to be plot-driven, or at least have to be as much plot-driven as they are, you know, studies of character and psychology. I do have to sit down with a pencil and paper and, and draw maps and say, right, this, and then, okay, so that will connect with that, and blah, blah, blah. So that, that is, that is labour. That's, that that that, that's the way that gets done. It's like building a, you know, it's like building a, a big uh, structure. So you'd um, use a, you use a actual just a piece of paper, not a spreadsheet or something? Like yeah, that? no, I mean, I'll just sit down with a piece yeah. of paper and a pencil and, and, you know, ring the character names and make, make little arrows for which connect, you know, how... You've got to, obviously, you've got to know... I mean, if you're going to do that, you have to know what the end point is and what the midpoint is and so on. I mean, there's obviously... There's a huge amount of room for manoeuvre along the way. Things change and you drop ideas and so on. But you have to have... Well, for me, anyway, I, you know, there has to be a sense of what the, what the, de what the, desti what the plot destination points are. Mm -hmm. So I have to establish those ahead of time. I did not do that with The Last Werewolf, and I sort of learnt the hard way <laughs> that actually that is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> unless, unless you've got a great natural gift for, you know, in this sort of Dickensian ability to, to fly by the seat of your pants and make it all work out right in the end. Unless you're gifted in that way, then the thing to do is to <laughs> sit down and map it out. The... The, the psychology, the, the characterization, that I, I don't, that just is, that's just what comes out. I mean, you know, by all means have the, have the architecture, but I'm getting to know these characters myself as I'm writing them. So that's not something I can work out ahead of time. The voice, the voice develops. Um, and Tallulah's narrative voice, as I said earlier, it was a real temptation to, to do Jake in a dress, you know, to just keep, keep, effectively keep Jake's voice, but make him female. And he was such a successful character. I mean, people, you know, still in interviews now keep saying to me, is he coming back? <laughs> you know, is he, is he really dead? You know? So I kind of, I've sort of kicked myself for, for, for taking him off this mortal coil, as it were. But again, the, the, answer, the answer to how, how the narrative voice develops and how it's distinctive from Jake's is from the predicament that she's in and from the building blocks of the character that we established in the first book. We don't, we, we don't see a great deal of her in the first book, but we see enough to get a sense of what kind of person she is. And for me, it was just a case of going back, looking back at that, you know, at the character that I'd started with, and logically extending from there. You've talked a little bit about this, but there's a lot of literature in these books, and these books are a lot about reading, and even to the point where Jake is a, a character in the book, even though he's dead, he's a literary character. Mm. Well, that was a that was a rather cheeky uh, sort of ploy to keep Jake's voice around a little <laughs> bit. Re readers had been so f sort of forthcoming in their in their demand f uh, that, that Jake was not gone that I really liked the idea of Tallulah inheriting his journals that, you know, that we hear about in the first book. He's, he, the first book is effectively a journal, and we know from his own narrative that he's kept these journals on and off for, you know, for 200 years. So I really loved the idea of Tallulah, you know, going to this safe deposit box, which he's left her and opening up, and there's, you know, there's 200 years worth of these little notebooks. I loved that just as a, as a scene, as a sort of legacy scene and as, as a poignant scene because it's at that point that she, the grief really becomes, you know, you know, she really starts to feel it. But also, to be truthful, it was a way of, of keeping the, the Jake fans happy. There was a lot, in the first draft, there, were a lot, there was a lot more from the journals, but, you know, the needs, of, the needs of plot and pace being what they are, some of that had to come out. So who knows, maybe some of them will crop up in book three. One of the things I think you do really well is to use the supernatural tropes to allow you to make statements that might come off as pretentious in, in a non 
supernatural narrative, but in here they seem perfectly appropriate. Uh, there's so many great uh, uh, bits about uh, life and, and uh, uh, thoughts, you know, life is generally artless, that's... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing, that, that there is something... To, to, to a lot of novelists, I think, there is something intrinsically fraudulent about the nature of plot. Because, you know, on the one hand, there has been this, you know, ongoing attempt since, well, since the 18th century, I suppose, to render a convincing, you know, verisimilitude, to, to make fiction the way that life is, so that a reader will recognize experience when, when he or she is reading a book. The problem there, of course, is that in order to keep people interested, generally, you give them a plot. But life doesn't have a plot, so there is an, there is a, there is an immediate feeling, you know, for a lot of writers that if you, just by having a plot, you are in some you're in some sort of small way betraying your own mission, you know, that you're supposed to be reflecting reality if that's what your your agenda is. If if you're supposed to be reflecting reality, then you shouldn't have a plot because reality doesn't have one. That said. I grew up Roman Catholic, and I think for lots of people who've grown up within the confines of a religion or an ideology or a set of values, which posits the world as a meaningful place, which posits the world as a designed place, for example, where actions have metaphysical consequences, that there is an order to things and, and there are genuinely moral values, absolute moral values, for example. There's a great temptation to look for signs of that design, you know, and plot Plot and story, and this is one of the reasons that we tell stories. I mean, because it 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 renders the world, which at least in modern times we feel is not meaningful, or a number of us at least feel feel is not meaningful. But storytelling is one of the ways in which you you can experience the world uh, imaginatively as if it is a meaningful place. So I I as a as a thinking person do not think the universe is meaningful. I think it's random is not perhaps the right word, but I don't think there's anybody up there who started it, and I don't think there's any up, anybody up there who's watching and manipulating or even remotely interested, frankly. But every now and again, there will be a little sequence of events in one's life or strange coincidences or, you know, you happen to read your horoscope and it's, it's dead on. And such is our appetite for, for this idea that the world actually is a story, you know, that it has, that it has an end point and that our lives have, have meaning and that will have an end point. Such is our appetite for that, that um, every now and again it's irresistible. One of the things, this is certainly a horror novel. I mean, there's, there's a fair amount of horror, not so much terror, I think. But I, I do think you do a good job at creating these scenes that involve violence and tension. And particularly, there's a, a, a lot in this book about torture. And so I, that must have, it seemed like that kind of stuff must have been difficult to, to write about. It's less difficult to write about in this gothically enlarged context. I mean, I've written about torture before, the, an earlier novel, A Day and a Night and a Day, which was a sort of post-9-11 novel, a third of which was set in an, in an interrogation cell, modelled, I suppose, somewhat on the Winston and O'Brien situation in 1984. That was a lot harder to write because you know, this stuff was actually happening in the world as I was writing it. It's not, you know, that was the reason why I was writing it, of course. And that was a lot harder to accommodate because you know that it's going on. When you have a situation like this, which is gothically enlarged, it's a bit like the violence in Tom and Jerry, in a way that, you know, it's, 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 it's inflated, it's made, it, it's warped, it's, it's distended. So the violence is not difficult to write. But in terms of the torture aspect, this this is a recurring theme with me that that there is a basic horror in being incarcerated in one's own flesh you know because one of the things that that lays you open to is that if you fall into somebody else's power 
you cannot escape your own body. I mean, you are stuck with it. There is consciousness, or you, know, you can call it whatever you like, the psyche or the soul, or some sense of interiority that is not, doesn't feel physical. But it is trapped and shackled, whether it likes it or not, to, to the flesh. So there had to be an examination of that, especially given that these creatures inflict suffering on other people and derive satisfaction from it. It had to be looked at from the other side when, you know, so Tallulah finds herself in, well, effectively a victim of torture. And that was the opportunity to look at it from the other side, because she says that no amount of violence that you do to another person prepares you for the experience of violence being done to you. And no, and again, no matter how culpable you may feel, no matter how much you might feel, at least intellectually, that you're getting your just desserts, the body won't allow it. The body is, it, the body is primary, and if the body's feeling pain, the only thing you care about is the cessation of that pain. And that's a base, to me, that's a basic sort of horror of the human condition, which, which these, you know, which these gothically violent and enlarged narratives allow, allow for some investigation. You talk about what you call the useful pain horizon. Yeah, that was an awful, that was an awful, awful uh, notion to come up with, I have to say. But yes, that was, I mean, I suppose that was a reflection of the way, you know, science treats the body, that, that what these guys are interested, you know, there's, this is a person suffering, and what these guys are interested in is, is, they're absolutely divorced from any sense of, you know, feeling or compassion or imagination. They're just interested in the, the sort of gimmick aspect of this of this condition like anthropy what does it do how quickly will she heal if we do this and how quickly will she heal if we do that and aesthetics and all the rest of it so that was just a kind of you know an observation of the way in which science can can completely dehumanize its subjects there's uh, scenes of sensuality and and sex but also uh, I, uh, pornography the connection between pornography and torture and I like what you call the porn line which I thought was very interesting this thing I mean there's one scene in particular which obviously I won't go into in detail because it'll spoil the story but my feeling is that uh, there's a scene in which somebody is being beaten to death and it's it's happening the the person doing it has a particular kind of psychology it's a sadistic psychology but it's also, and, and I think f- my feeling is that what drives that kind of sadism is, a, is, a, is a, an endlessly frustrated desire to become like God, to have complete power over another person such that you feel deified. The problem with it is that it's impossible to achieve that state in anything other than a sort of fleeting form. The, in, the destruction of the individual, uh, an, an actual person with a personality and an, an, and an identity, that I think is what provides that psychology with its with its titillation, but the person disappears very quickly and becomes a body, becomes an assemblage of parts, uh, which is I think parallel to what happens in pornography. You know um, that there is a there is a way in which personalities in pornography, individual human uh, personalities, uh, which are manifest even without you know in the way that people are, the way they look, the way they move, the way their voice sounds, and so on. You build you know one builds a picture of what that person may be like. Pornography, or certainly extreme and repetitive pornography, uh, destroys that personhood in the same way. In a, in a kind of, in, in a, it's, it's 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 in a parallel way. The person's individual traits disappear and they become flesh. They become, you know, just a, an assemblage of parts. So that was a that was a sort of uh, an analogy that I wanted to kind of tease out in there. One of the things I think that's interesting is the the way that. Um, you build up, there are some fantastic set pieces in this book. And uh, I can tell you're having a lot of fun doing it, and we have a lot of fun reading it. I'm not having any fun doing it, Rick, I can, oh. I can promise you. I mean, the set pieces especially are, are 
they're a nightmare. I mean, these things, again, this is not the stuff that comes naturally to me. Making, making action scenes work, especially these big sort of orchestrated ones where there are multiple, you know, actors. I feel like I am attempting to manipulate 10-ton marionettes with broken wrists. That's how it, it, it feels unbelievably unwieldy and laborious. And I am, I'm, I'm a very hard reader to convince that this is actually working. You know, I mean, I'm writing these scenes and I don't know, they don't seem to, they, they never seem right to me. Um, they always feel very, very sort of laborious. But that's the hardest part. And it, and it isn't any kind of fun. Um, oh, really? <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, I, I, was, I was talking last night um, uh, at uh, one of the bookstores here and people always say, you know, you, you sound like you're having a lot of fun with these books. And, you know, writing a novel is not fun. You know, having written a novel is fun. Having finished the thing is, is fun. And getting language right at the level of the sentence, that's still very satisfying. But the actual process of, you know, eight or ten hours a day going to the coalface day after day, that's not fun. That's, that's work, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's satisfying occasionally, but I would never really describe it as fun. The fun feeling comes after, after you've finished and, and readers are responding to it. Then there's a sense of like, well, actually, that's great that people are, you know, that people are having fun with this. But the actual process of writing, I mean, I spend every day, you know, I spend several hours every day looking for reasons not to start writing. It's really, it's really that simple. But, you know, I made a commitment to myself years ago that I was going to spend eight or ten hours every day, you know, writing in inverted commas. And sometimes that means that you spend four hours and all you've achieved is the deletion of everything that you wrote yesterday. Um, but that still counts because that is how the book gets written. It gets written as much by what you take out as by what you put in. You know, when you talked about the level of the sentence, um, that's something I really notice in, the, in these books. There are just so many remarkable sentences that you just want to read again and again and again. And it's, it's one of the things that uh, I think uh, distinguishes your books because we have a great plot, we have really intense and psychologically real characters, but, um, and I think this is in part, I think the supernatural tropes and the gothic world really help you, it seems to me, make those sentences fit in with the characters and the action. Well, that's, I mean, that's always number one on my agenda. You know, I, I care about language. I, the writers that I admire are all, terrific, are all great stylists. Uh, not known for having plot, I might add. That'd be Graham Greene. <laughs> well, well, actually, Graham Greene has plot. Uh -huh. uh, and, and when I came to write The Last Werewolf, I'd read about, I'd just come off the back of reading about eight or ten of his novels. And mm -hmm. he divided his work into novels and en what he called entertainments. Mm -hmm. um, now, his entertainments, frankly, are, are better than most people's novels. So, um, you know, I, I think he was doing himself a, a disservice there. But... Um, Getting yes, the 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 languages that the, the the writers that I like are, are stylists. Uh, I have no explanation for this except that it it there is nothing to me like um, a sentence that when you read it is the best version of is the best possible version of that sentence. That just does something for me. That 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 a great story, you know, even a great story doesn't. There are of course great stories that are, that that hook you in and you know you're desperate to find out what happens next and so on. And I'm I'm a sucker for that stuff too, although less in books than in film quite happy to consume you know popcorn films that are you know there's basically just a story and you just there's no real you know there's no there's nothing deeper than that going on it's just an entertaining yarn that's fine but with books because they are I mean the medium is language it's the written word the language has to be fresh you know the, the job of literature is to refresh the mysteries the basic human mysteries and the way that you do that is through language 
Um, so it really matters. Writers who make every single word work really hard don't present you with metaphors and similes and phrases that you've heard before. That, does not, that doesn't refresh anything. That's just, that's just repetition. You have to find new ways and ways that are true to your experience of the world. And you have to find the language that, that does, just, does justice to it. Well, I, I really liked, uh, at one point, Tallulah thinks, people start trying to kill you, you stop wearing skirts. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, I, that's, that uh, was one of, that was, again, that act of imaginative extension. I thought, you know, actually, if you were, if, if this was your life, if you were constantly in, in fear of assault, you know, maybe you'd wear trousers. Uh, it just, I'd actually, I mean, having not worn a skirt myself, I don't know, maybe you actually have greater, you know, sort of mobility. But uh, my feeling was, if, if 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 I was in that situation, I'd be wearing I'd be wearing something that made it easy to run and to move and to kick people in the teeth. You know, <laughs> one of the things about your werewolves that's uh, so interesting is that they don't just uh, kill their victims; they internalize them. So talk about that. And there's a great uh, scene in here where somebody uh, considers the nature of their victims. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was, um, I mean, that was something that emerged very quickly uh, as part of my version of this uh, creature in the first book. Not least because, as you say, the, the, the first book, and this one, but the first book, I think, even more, is about reading a little bit. I mean, mm -hmm. that's one of the ways of reading that novel. Jake, it, it opens in a library, you know, in Harley's library. Um, books are referenced throughout. Jake is writing, you know, the novel that we're reading as a journal. There's a library fire. Um, and there is this business of... Um, the werewolves consuming that not only the, the the flesh and blood of their victims but their memories and their their life history it's as if there's a sort of after shadow of the of the person that they carry around inside them um this is like reading this is like what we do with books i mean it's extraordinary when you come to think of it that we read all these books and we encounter these characters which if they're any good stay with us for the rest of our lives and we are walking around with hundreds you know uh, if not thousands of, of of imaginary beings inside us that we've that we've come to through books the parallel jake says to Tallulah, you know um it would be lovely if you could just eat the bad guys you know um it would be a it would be a conscience salve um but the curse doesn't allow for that he says the curse is like the curse has god's appetite all literatures. It, it demands everything, the whole human spectrum from saints to psychos. And that, you know, to me, although it's, although it's sort of delivered in, in a comic way, in a kind of blackly comic way, that is the job of literature. The job of literature is to map the human experience. I mean, it's, it's a preposterous and doomed mission, but it's a necessary mission, and books that are worth their salt should be doing that. You know, we should, we should be trying to understand all the aspects of, of our experience. So, Insofar as them eating their victims is like literature, it's it's for that reason that, that there's this appetite uh, for the whole human uh, for the whole human range, which is which is what literature should be doing. It's like uh, when we say I, I ate that book. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Two, I, I'm wondering, was the was the shift to Tallulah part of your own personal desire to uh, map the whole of human experience. I mean, because this is a very, I mean, it's different from Jake and it's different from who you are. I mean, uh, this, a lot of this book is about say the pain of giving birth and that's a very interesting, you know, the way you describe that seems right on. Right. And uh, well, I hope so. But I mean, again, the only, the only test for that will be if, if women who've been through that experience find it, you know, find it convincing. And if they do, great, then, you know, I got it right. And if they don't, well, <laughs> you know, it's too bad. I'll have to try again sometime. 
But, you know, it sounds very grandiose to talk about mapping the whole range of human experience. And I suppose what I'm saying is that any novel, you know, has to, has to if it's worth its salt, has to make some contribute, you know, some, some contribution to that. There's that poem by W.H. Uh, w. Auden, which I never tire of alluding to, called The Novelist, in which he, it, and it has never been put more succinctly or better than this. He says that, it's a, it's a short poem, but the last couple of stanzas, he's talking about what the novelist has to do. And he says, to, um, to achieve his lightest wish, he must become the whole of boredom subject to vulgar complaints like love among the just be just among the filthy filthy too and in his own weak person if he can suffer dully all the wrongs of man right now that's that's the novelist's brief it's it's absurd you know there is absolutely no way that this we're ever going to be able to do this because he's effectively saying you must become like god but doomed mission though it is um it's necessary and we must all well novelists i think who who want to who want to do the real thing should all be um making a contribution to that. You've created this as a series. Do you know how, how it ends? Did yeah, you, and did you know how it ended when you started the first book? Uh, no, I knew, no, I did not. Uh, in fact, not only did I not know how the series ended, I didn't know how the first book ended when I started the first book. <laughs> so, so no, the, the, sort of over, the, the overall narrative um, structure has been being built whilst it was sort of being occupied, if you like. But I know how, yes, I do know how the series ends now. Uh, and I did know, once I, once I got started with Tallulah, I knew what the, I did sort of know what the end point more or less was. The third book is much more difficult because there's a lot of things that have to be tied together. We do, for example, get, finally get to see Quinn's book, which is this alleged myth of origin, you know, for the werewolf species. This is something that uh, a lot of uh, supernatural novels, they, they're always very interested in the origin of the vampires mm. or the origin of the werewolves, whatever it is, mm. where we get to find that out. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I have to have this in, in this, in this uh, series because it was, it was, you know, this notion of Quinn's book, this myth of origin has been, has been played with throughout the first two books. So it would be, and it would be an abysmal cheat of the reader if they never actually got, to, <laughs> never actually got to encounter it. But having said that, I think there's also a danger of losing something when you present a myth of origins. You mm -hmm. know that I can remember reading the Anne Rice novels years and years ago, and although, of course, one of the things that drives you through the through those novels is the search for the origin of the spe of their species, you know, which Lestat becomes obsessed with. At the same time, when it, when you finally get to it, although it was very well done. There is this feeling of having seen the little old man behind the curtain in Oz, you know, that, that I wish I didn't know that that was the, that was the you know, that was the sort of uh, the origin of this species. There's something about the mysteriousness of that that, that keeps the thing living. So mine will be, uh, it'll be ambiguous, a little bit, it'll be a little bit ambiguous, and the reader will still be left plenty of room to, for skepticism. But, um, but I will have to have, to have uh, my version of the origin myth in there. So that will be coming in book three. Uh, there's a few pieces of this book that that seem like they're reaching for the next book, and I don't want to say what they are. But I, I'm uh, were there things that you put in this book that are going to be resolved in the next yeah. book? Yeah, I mean very much so. There, oh, there are there are characters who will carry over from this book into the next. Uh, one relatively new character who makes an appearance uh, towards the end of the book, um, who will feature very heavily in the third book, uh, without naming any names. Um, so yes, there will be th this book, and more so actually in a way than with the Last Werewolf, which, which as I said, was you know largely sort of written flying by the seat of my pants. This one, there are it was much more deliberately structured so that so that strands of the narrative would feed out into into a third book. 
So some of those, yeah, uh, hopefully all those things will be resolved in book three. Otherwise, I'll have to write a fourth one. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think you did do very well with that last book, with The Last Werewolf, and with this book, is give us books that seem very whole and complete in, in, of, in and of themselves. And that's a very difficult trick because the, the middle books and trilogies are often known to be somewhat weak because they don't have a beginning or an end. Mm. And I think this book has a great beginning and has a great ending. Well, I, I tried to make it such that if you had not read the first book, you would still be able to read this and understand it, and it would and it would be sort of more or less self-contained. But also to, you know, keep enough of the connections alive with the first book, so that for readers of the first book, it was a it was a kind of natural progression. There is, it, and you know, it is a sort of chronological sequence of events. I hope that people start with the first book and then go through the second and the third. But I am doing my best to make them such that even if you don't start in that order, that you still get a sort of self-contained novel. Do you think you'll still keep working in uh, with elements of the fantastic in your novels, or do you think you'll go back to uh, the, the mundane world of go back to all that go, go back to all that stuff that doesn't sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I mean, the, the, it's not, these books are not my first sort of dabbling with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. There was I, Lucifer, which was, you know, narrated by the devil. Um, I had a novel called Death of an Ordinary Man, which was narrated by, you know, a deceased person, a, a, a spirit. So it's not the first time that I've I've dipped my toe in those waters, but I'm not I don't whether I'll stay with supernatural the supernatural specifically or whether you know I really like the idea of doing a crime story for example I mean a, a, a straight in inverted commas crime story something very simple a murder you know a detective a pursuit the solution of a crime but put through the same kind of filter that that you know the werewolves are put through um, with the same you know, with the same emphasis on ca on character and psychology, and with and with some uh, with some laughs along the way. Hard to do a murder novel with laughs, I'm thinking, but but maybe that would be an interesting <laughs> maybe that would be an interesting challenge. But it definitely helps to have some sort of, have some sort of framework. You know that that these books were, you know, well, the Last Werewolf in particular, it was a real discovery to find the advantage that working within at least with one foot within within a genre and one foot out to have a sort of to have a kind of preset architecture you know and certain expectations and certain things that would have to be in the book the transformation scenes and the kill and the, the sort of doomed love story all these all these kind of stock gothic uh, tropes uh, it's it was helpful to have those things it was like having a half-built structure that you you could then flesh out so maybe I will stay within uh, or at least half half within uh, some form some some genre form Last I heard, uh, Ridley Scott's company had bought The Last Werewolf. Um, I'm wondering if that's moving any closer to a movie since it reads like a movie, it plays like a movie. Well, it's, it's moving closer in the way that these things are always moving closer, <laughs> which is to say um, it's, it's in development. Um, somebody is working, somebody's working on a script um, right now, but as a sort of reality check, I should say that you know, I, Lucifer, which I published in 2003, which was optioned in 2003, is still in development, and we are now in 2012. So, this is something that I don't hold my breath about. You know, I mean, look, if they make a movie uh, and it's good, I'll be a very happy man, and I'll get paid, which will be very nice. <laughs> but I never hold my breath about these things. Uh, you know, movies, the movie industry is is a strange and unpredictable uh, and slow, generally slow-moving uh, animal. So, I'm not, uh, I'm not, um, I'm not banking on it. Well, and as we all know, the movies are never as good as the books, and it's a different experience. It's I, I really struggle to come up with a movie that's been adapted from a novel um, 
where I think the movie's even as good as the book, let alone better than. I can't, you know, it's very hard for me to, to, to think of one. You know, there's some, something like maybe The Last Picture Show. I thought the movie was as good as the, as the novel. I thought that was a very, very, very well-made movie and a, and a great adaptation. Um, but they're pretty few and far between. I'd be struggling to come up with, you know, five, I think. Um, it would be, they generally are disappointing, I think, if you've been a fan of the book. Do you have a title for the next book? The next book is called By Blood We Live. And it's taken from, that line is taken from a, a Geoffrey Hill poem called Genesis. It's from a little part of the poem in which the lines are, By blood we live, the hot, the cold, to ravage and redeem the world. There is no bloodless myth will hold. Which I'm quoting from memory, so I apologize if I've got that slightly wrong, but it's, that's about the size of it. So yes, that's the title. I've been speaking with Glenn Duncan. His new book is Tallulah Rising. Thank you for joining me, Glenn. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.